Okay. So it looks like we are, let me see, make sure we are live on both platforms. Okay. There goes YouTube. My Facebook always gives me a little resistance, so I can't often tell if it's live. You're live. Oh, you see it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't. All right, so we're just going to roll with that. Uh, hope everybody is well. Welcome to this week's Onyx Report. I apologize for being a few minutes over, but uh, got a special guest in the building um, who we are always happy to have on screen. He's always supporting the show in the comment section, but I always love to have him on, especially considering that, uh, you know, the brother is a fountain of information and I don't want people to, I don't understand how people get that twisted. So we about to, we about to let uh, BGS come in here and put his foot in this. So I hope everybody is doing well. Shout out to officer Faulkner. What's up, Damon Malika. Um, let's see. Got a number of people in here. Mr. Wusaw, nameless protagonist. Um, ADOS narrative. Christopher, what's going on? Muada, um, what's happening? Uh, oh man, we got a full house tonight, man. Uh, Michael Harper. Hit, hit, the like, hit the like button on your way in, folks. Hit the like button on your way in. Hit the like button. Share. Subscribe, please. We're we're, we're not too far from 10,000 subscribers, so that would be a uh, something I would enjoy. Um, but uh, got about 73 watching so far. Um, but definitely a full room. Rashid, what's happening? Uh, TRN, right? Uh, so we definitely, I think we struck a nerve, uh, most particularly on this subject. But uh, you guys know me. We got a number of things to cover before we get to that. And they're all related, so um, it's not wholly separate. West Coast, what's going on? Uh, Professor Conroe, thank you. Good to see you in here. Uh, now, let me just get this thing up in here, and we will be good. Um What's your, what's your, uh, give me a cash app, BGS. Mine? Mm-hmm. Oh. Hold what's on. I, I gotta look it up myself. <laughs> I never know it offhand. Mr. Meach, what's happening? Uh, Mr. Marcus, Adam, what's going on? know the deal. The subject of today's discussion, are black boys still property of the state? A black masculinist analysis. All right. Um, so we are going to go in in a little bit. Oh, you just went ahead and put it in the chat. Okay. Yeah. I was going to type it in here, but that works too. All right. All right. So please support the channel. Um, 
this week, uh, as I said, we're going to be, what's up, Marvin? Uh, we're going to be going in, obviously, on black boys and the condition of them. And I got some uh, some information that might blow you away if you're not familiar with some of the data. So we'll be getting into that. Next week, we'll be dealing with black male archetypes. Um, so we'll be talking a little bit about the ways in which we present ourselves. Um, and contrary to how I tend to see it happening on YouTube, I'm not just going to point out some of the things we could do better. I'm going to point out some of the things we've been doing damn good and not being acknowledged on even by each other. So we're going to get into a little of that. And, and BGS is going to be my guest this week and next week for that discussion. So yes, um, we're going to have some fun with that, I think. Um, so let's go in a little bit. We, you know, the way I like to do it, you guys know, I like to start with some current events. Um, you know, we got 110 people watching. So as people come in, I figure we can catch up on some things. Now, some of this I'm showing you uh, this slide and the next one uh, because it relates to me personally. Uh, right now, we're looking at a new record. Two million acres of California has burned this year. And I am in central California, if you didn't know, Fresno. Uh, so I'm a good three and a half hours away from L.A. I'm a good three and a half hours away from San Francisco and Oakland. I'm right in the center of the state and we're having some severe fires. So I want to show you a picture of what Fresno looks like from the sky. So right now you, in this image you're seeing here as orange as everything is. That's how it's been looking the last number of days. If you step out of my door, if you step out of my door. It looks like this and all you can smell is ash. But this is what. It looks like from the sky in Central California where I am. All right. So this is what we're dealing with right now. It's crazy out here. Um, it is difficult to breathe. As a matter of fact, um, it. Uh, hold on. If you look on your iPhone, if you live here and you look up weather, it'll just say the you know the, the other day it said 100 degrees, and as far as the weather, it just said smoke. Mm, right? okay. So this is what we're looking at. Yeah. So this this is all the trees burning, um, and much of it uh, coming into Fresno County is still unchecked, zero percent containment for a good portion of it. So it is it's a little wild. They've been clearing out the mountains. Uh, Rashid, Mr. Meach, appreciate the cash app support. Uh, they've been clearing out the mountains and evacuating. So I have um, family member of friends, you know, or yeah, friends, family members that are being evacuated out of those areas. It's getting crazy. Um, but this is what we're looking at. OK. Uh, but anyway, so just kind of wanted to start with that because that's what we're dealing with right now. Uh, but as I go through these current events, I'm going to enjoy having my brother comment on some of these and some of these are just going to be a straight uh handoff for the touchdown to brother bgs and he'll know it when he sees them uh so this one i thought was a good report a good uh a piece on washingtonpost.com and by good i just mean um useful information if you're not aware uh near birthplace of martin luther king a predominantly black nursing home tries to heal after a heart after outbreak and basically what this article talks about is how many black nursing homes are losing people behind COVID mm -hmm. um, and, and the impact of that. Had you had a chance to see this particular article? I, article? I haven't seen this one, but I've seen uh, economists. I think it was uh, EPI was talking about the uh, um, the the articles about the uh, well, not the people's couple, especially black people, how um, 
the medical establishment actually ignored them, actually enhanced to increase the death rate of COVID mm -hmm. by not getting the proper care. So I'm mm -hmm. not surprised about this. Right, right. And this is what we're looking at. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to check out the article, definitely check it out. Because again, you know, when we look at any kind of natural disaster, if you have a group of people that haven't been uh, subsidized, even to the degree that they should be as citizens, these mm -hmm. kind of things can em end up having an adverse impact mm -hmm. on them. And this is definitely one way we see it. The most vulnerable. Um, and the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Okay. Was there something you were about to add? Mm -mm. Okay. All right. So next one up. Vulture Capitalism, Ahmad Arbery's mom accuses organizations and social media pages of profiting off of her son's death. Mm. Uh, this is uh, off Atlanta Black Star. Interesting because uh, at the end of the day, this is what brothers have been saying, particularly in YouTube for the last number of years mm -hmm. in terms of how black males have been treated and perceived to be uh, really cash cows. My boy, Green Gorilla commented on this a few days ago um, on my Facebook page. Um, but uh, he, he, you know, one of the things he talked about uh, was the ways in which, uh, you know, this ends up being a lottery for people. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And mm -hmm. also not only financially, but also politically. Absolutely. They use these, uh, use black men's bodies as stepping stones. Stepping songs. I've seen people advance into politics. I've seen people advance into um, local uh, activism, and and that's and and I and I'm happy about the activism, but um, mm -hmm. when it's done in a way that doesn't end up supporting black males, especially in regard to to how their own children died, how their own family members died, or whoever they advocated for to get into those positions, it it doesn't make any sense. Um, let me see. This uh, piece here, Huff Post, HuffingtonPost.com, Michelle Obama on the challenges she faced in marriage to Barack Obama. I brought this up in a video I did uh, in honor of Chadwick Boseman because this was the piece where she was trying to give advice about marriage mm -hmm. and commented on how uh, there were times she wanted to push her husband out of a window. Right. Uh, please tell us what is the problem with such a statement, Brother BGS? I basically for whatever reason, uh, black women do not uh, think about their husband's legacy. Mm. And, um, and every time you mention something like this, um, uh, uh, that Michelle Obama, this is not the first time she said something like this. She's been saying something like this since um, he was running the first time when she talks about how he used to leave his socks on the floor you know, as a wife had to pick up behind him. And this is before he became president. But thing mm -hmm. is, this is just typical. But you never hear uh, most first ladies actually turn trying to tarnish the uh, the the legacy of their husbands, mm -hmm. whether it's in I, marriage or or anything else. Well, and I would go so far as to say she probably thinks that this is you know that what she said is not po not only positive in general, but positive even in regard to Barack. I don't think she even conceptualizes this as disrespectful. No, I mean, that, so and that's one of the things that really intrigued me about this because. I grew up listening to this, mm -hmm. you know, in family, amongst friends, amongst, you know, in the in the in the in environments that I've socialized in, even in schools. I grew up hearing this kind of talk as, mm -hmm. as you know, as part of that kind of casual black women, women's culture mm -hmm. where what I call that low boiling misandry is, yeah. is, is, is is part of the, the language. That's why she's so beloved by black women. 
Absolutely. It's because she, they, they say she's a real sister. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the belittling of him marks yeah. her as marks such. It as, as such. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so go ahead. <laughs> like I said, it, you would think that at a certain level you wouldn't hear it, but the thing is, it proves that no matter. I, I actually used uh, a couple of her takes about uh, uh, about her being married to Barack and mm-hmm. showing how no matter what level the man is that a sister still sees uh, black men the same way. Sure. I mean, look, you know, as many problems as I've had with Barack, particularly in regard to uh, the Policy. impact the impact of his policies on black wealth, mm-hmm. you know, I have a number of problems with Barack, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is, this is still a black man who's achieved a level of a level that no other has. And yet he's still discussed as if he's something to be tolerated, mm-hmm. something, you know what I mean? And, and so it, what it really highlights for black men is that no matter how far you get, mm-hmm. this kind of low boiling misandry is going to is, is still considered acceptable. Yeah, there, there's way, no way out of it. He's just a black man. It doesn't matter what he's achieved. Right. It doesn't matter what he's achieved. Um, OK, so this one, uh, this was one you and I had talked about before, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think I covered it in the last show because I covered a lot of different articles. But this one I thought was interesting. Evicted Loyola law student allegedly threatened landlord before New Orleans apartment fire. Right. This this was a young black woman and the landlord was a black woman. And uh, it was a number of things that happened here. But she basically couldn't pay her rent Mm -hmm. uh, for an extended period of time. Right. We talked about August as being the eviction landslide month. Right. Right. Uh, And I think she got caught in that. So she 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 began to threaten the landlord and her children and her children. Yes. And when she was finally evicted, uh, you know, she set her apartment on fire mm-hmm. uh, and it ended up, I think it took the whole building, the whole apartment. Yeah, the building. whole building, all 26 units. Yeah. All 26 units. Yeah. And they said she, she, she they said that as she was leaving uh, for the last time, uh, like five minutes after she left, you can see the, uh, the, the, the blaze start to grow. Mm. So yeah, it, old it, families out on the street. Yeah, and, and yeah, well, twenty six families actually. Yeah, uh, out on the streets. Yeah, because it burned. It was twenty six unit apartment. It burned down the whole apartment building. So it has all these people out on the street. And uh, if you listen to her lawyer and her, they they try to make her out as a victim. Is okay. She was a poor thing. She's a law student. She she mm-hmm. they were putting out on the street, and she just lost it. In other words, mm-hmm. they're trying to excuse what she did. Right. Right. Can you imagine if this was a young black male? Uh, <laughs> Need I go there? Well, it, but I, I I highlighted this especially because, again, just like a few other of the posts that we've looked at and will continue to look at uh, that even contribute to tonight's discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this highlights just how you know crazy things are. And I say that because, look, I know people here in Fresno mm-hmm. that are like, oh, I'm doing fine. You know, I don't know what all of the, the stress is about. I'm good. Everything's cool. And I'm like. You know, if you literally look at the images of, of Fresno from the sky, we're in hell. If you look at the economy of the country, if you look at, you know, the state that many people are living in, the unemployment, the, right. the, you know, it's amazing how much a few people that are doing well can be oblivious to what's yeah. going on. So I post these kind of pieces to remind folks this is real. This you is know what people the, are dealing with. You know what? The, the, the thing that I read that kind of bothered me that she felt justified in doing what she did. Right. I mean, right. still, still, even though she's behind bars, she felt justified mm-hmm. that the that the landlord shouldn't have pushed her. The landlord had no right to evict her. 
Right. For not paying right. the rent. And because she felt that she shouldn't have been, she should have been, you know, she shouldn't have had to pay mm-hmm. that, that justified this kind of response mm-hmm. just because of that. Absolutely. Of that. Yeah. Um, this is an image that uh, an associate of mine uh, linked wow. to me on Facebook. Now, to my understanding, uh, I haven't found any evidence of it, but this was technically, I was told, an image that came out of South Africa. Hmm. But the interesting thing about it is on my page when I posted it, black men, including myself, of course, began to comment on our experiences here in America. Uh, and not only our experiences, because I'm, I'm about 45. This happened with my son as well in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this kind of segregation that we can talk about in South Africa, uh, particularly during the apartheid years, is hardly limited to South Africa. And it's definitely going to relate to what we're going to get into a little later. But you can see the kind of um, placement and what goes on. Right. So I thought I'd just share this because I think it gives context. And I wouldn't be surprised if brothers in the chat had similar experiences. That's I think that's common. The only difference is, is that uh, the black boys wouldn't have been in the classroom at all. They've been in their own special education classroom. Yes, sir. And there, so there are levels to this segregation. Levels to uh, it. So they're, they're they're lucky to be in the room, but you can see the treatment. And I've seen how the teachers will treat uh, the one or two black boys. And I wish I was exaggerating. The one or two that can, that 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 are allowed to stay in the room, mm-hmm. um, they still get mistreated. They still get uh, low, you know, graded low for their efforts, and they get hyper penalized for things that I've seen rooms of these kids doing. Um, you know, but. Nevertheless, I thought I'd share that very quickly uh, because I thought it poignant. And when we get to the latter part of the show, you'll see why. All right. I had to cover this. Y'all know that. (laughs) Had to. Right. So we've had two incidents of non-black women uh, portraying themselves as black women in the academy. The one on the left uh, is a professor whose work is primarily in Africana studies and Afro-women's studies. And the one on the right is apparently a graduate student. But we're finding this kind of um, this treatment of, uh, of blackness and womanness as something that white women are attempting to profit from. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, any thoughts about this, sir? And, sh- and shout out to Kalila in the chat. It's good to see you here. Uh, but go ahead, brother. What I'm saying is, the only reason a white woman would pretend to be a black woman is because there's a benefit. It, because mm-hmm. there's money there, there's benefits to be had. So a lot of black women that say they're oppressed and they don't get any benefits, that they're being discriminated against. But a, but a white woman, a white Jewish woman that's middle class would pretend to be a black woman to get benefits. Mm-hmm. So there has to be something there. Like, uh, um, why do you rob a bank? Because that's where the money is. Why would mm. you pretend to be a black woman? Because that's where the money is. Mm. So a lot of them saying they're unprotected, they're they're discriminated against, and all the other things that they say. Uh, this is like two times. Well, this is like the third time. You see a, a, a white woman pretending to be a black woman and getting benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So there must yeah. be something there. Must be something to benefit from. And the mm. one thing that I've heard my brothers online commenting on is we never quite see too many people trying to imitate black men. No, that, I that's why that is. That is a little bit more dangerous. <laughs> well, <laughs> what people do you mean? people don't want to get shot and, yeah. and tackled and treated. You know, interesting. 
and the, 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 the white men that do try it, they only do it for maybe a month or two. <laughs> quick in and out, yeah. Quick in and out. Is it yeah, absolutely. I don't know how you guys do this. <laughs> and I think this is the fallout of intersectionality in many ways, right? The basic idea that uh, you know, blackness in and of itself can be on a sliding scale with other identities, and it's all good. Yeah. And I think you kind of open up this avenue for people to start playing with identity, especially in when it, it when it's in profitable ways, as you point out. So, you know, nobody wants to be a black male because it's not profitable in the identity calculus of intersectionality. But being a black female does come with tangible benefits, especially in terms of resources. You guys remember the show from last week when we talked about the kinds of grants and business loans made available to uh, women and black women as categories. But yeah. none were earmarked for black men. For black men. Exactly. Yeah. You know? uh, I think Tareen has put up something to chat with about a story. Um, did you hear about the black boy in Colorado who got suspended on a virtual class for having a fake gun? Oh, and yeah. they, they knew it was fake, didn't inform the parents they could have got his house shot up because they did send the police to his house. Come on, man. Tarian, you know we're going to get to that. We can't, we can't miss <laughs> that one. You, you jump in the gun, man. But, I, <laughs> but you, gave us, you gave the super chat, so I wanted to thank you for that. Yeah, yeah you're, you're kicking you know. the chair, Tarian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, an interesting piece that's dealing with some of what uh, you kind of refer to in a slightly different way, but uh, we're, we're looking at how uh, people are dealing with re remote learning. And what we're finding is that uh, particularly in low income areas, you're finding children, uh, child neglect cases opened up against them for failure to log into virtual classes, mm -hmm. even though the whole question of Internet access uh, and, of course, device having you know the proper kind of devices to where they can participate is a huge question. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, just thought that this was something to consider as we move forward. I'm going to jump through a few of these. Um, this one here, I just wanted to shout out this young brother here. Y'all know as often as I can, I like to talk about what I call the sacred black masculine. And that's where you find black males doing things that they are generally, uh, not largely acknowledged for, but it, you know, tends to be uh, fairly humane. And in this particular instance, you're talking about a young man named Tamar Boggs who chased a car on his bike for 15 minutes to save, uh, a five-year-old girl kidnapped from her front yard. Right. I don't know if we've seen any large scale cases on that. Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate the support. Um, but yeah, so shout out to Tamar. Now, this might be something that's a little familiar to some of you. Right. 69 black boys padlocked in the dormitory dormitory at school when it was set on fire in 1959 in Wrightsville, Wrightsville, Arkansas. Um, any thoughts on this BGS? Um, uh, I, I'm hoping they most of them survive, but this is this is fairly common. Mm -hmm. And uh, and these are the men that, that we actually know about. Thousands, right. thousands of bodies are buried that will never be found. Right, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, as we talked about off air, you know, a couple of days ago, and you know, I remember watching a documentary at Fresno State where the uh, documentary documentary maker came to the campus and talked about. Uh, interviewing a, an elderly white male who was a child in Tulsa, home, Tulsa, Oklahoma, when the massacre took place. And he watched as a child at the local funeral, uh, local cemetery, them loading black bodies into a hay baler. Uh, I think that's the proper term for it. 
and it, the flesh was literally fed into the dirt mm. on the ground. So it, where you had bodies that were there and, of course, whites who were buried later, they were literally buried in, you know, what were the remains of black folk who were killed in Tulsa. So the kind of uh, careless treatment, the, the horrendous treatment of black men, uh, again, is still prevalent. And again, I show this, too, because it, it still kind of goes into tonight's topic, too. Mm. about uh, black boys. So in this instance, uh, 1959, March 5th, 13 to 17 year old boys uh, who were experiencing, experiencing this at the Negro Boys Industrial School in Wrightsville wow. around 4 a.m. fire mysteriously ignited, forcing the boys to fight and claw their way out of the burning building. It's an event in history possibly forgotten or unknown by many, but it's that moment that claimed the life of the lives of 21 boys. Uh, it was a carefully calculated murder, uh, but was designed to kill uh, 69 that were housed inside the dormitory, uh, said Frank Lawrence. He was made, uh, he has made it uh, his life's mission to uncover the truth surrounding what he calls the Arkansas secret Holocaust. When the smoke cleared um, that March morning in 1959, the boys who burned to death were found piled on top of one another in the corner of the dormitory. The 48 who had survived managed to escape by prying off mesh metal screens wow. from two windows. The horrific event briefly made headlines that also brought attention to the squalor and deplorable conditions in which the boys lived. Right. Um, so, again, this this was something we happened to find out about. But as you said, this these are the stories that we actually got some recording about. Um, shout out to uh, Underdog Glory. Appreciate that support. Right. So, um, again, feeding into aspects of tonight, the treatment of not only black men, but black boys. Um, recent one here, Tamar Brax Braxton's boyfriend reportedly files restraining order against her for domestic violence. <laughs> this was actually an African brother that she was highlighting uh, about uh, how, how much she appreciated him not long before this and how supportive he was and then this happened so yeah a lot of undiagnosed um, um <laughs> mental mm -hmm. illness by tamar that's, absolutely that's the thing that's why she divorced her uh her, her former husband actually divorced her because of uh domestic violence mm -hmm. where they were actually in malls getting in a fight fist fights mm -hmm. absolutely and, and and i post this mainly because Every time I talk about, uh, you know, intimate partner violence, I always get people and I've had this from academics. Right. You, you know, mm -hmm. black men can't be uh, can't be abused. You know, they're, they're incapable of it. And I get black men to say the same thing. Uh, uh, T Fitness, uh, appreciate the support. But I get black men to say the th same thing. Black men can't be abused. And, and really what we're talking about is we're in a scenario. Right. Particularly since the Duluth model in the 1980s. But what that's mushroomed into is, you know, it's not about whether or not you can handle a woman toe to toe. That's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about if you respond mm -hmm. in any kind of physical manner, right, you are far more uh, subject to go to prison than she is. You know what I mean? So you, you have black men who are backed into a corner, mainly due to the, the proxy influence of the state. It's not about her because, you know, the, the response I hear from black men, well, I can take her. I can take I can take her. I have one brother. There ain't no woman that can take me. I'm like, it's that's well, first of all, I've seen videos where that's not the case, but that's not the point. 
But that's not the point. The point is simply that because of the way, uh, you know, our, our national culture has, has progressed, the laws, the policies on the books, and the way that those things are interpreted, uh, it tends to stand in a manner where you have to pretty much risk your livelihood, your reputation, uh, if you protect yourself from a woman. You still have to risk all of that. Um, and so, you know, why you'll see professional black men like this even uh, filing for restraining orders and whatnot, he has no other recourse, right? You know, even if he just holds her in place, if she decides to make the argument that he's aggressed her, you know, that could be the end of that. Yeah, that's, you know, that's been the case for a very long time, you know, even before the Violence Against Women Acts. Uh, that was that's been the case where a woman could actually pick up a phone or go down to the local law enforcement. Have you picked up? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to kind of post this as a reminder that, uh, you know, no black man is is beyond experiencing this. I don't care how tough you are. I don't care how big you are. Uh, it's not about that. It, it's it's really a policy issue. It's really an interpretation issue. And it's really a, a, a systemic misandry in place in terms of the assumption of what black men are at the end of the day. Um, some of you may have seen this. Uh, this is in Sarasota, right? Sheriff's Deputy Neil uh, Paizo, I think is how you pronounce his name. If you watch this, you can see that the boy is actually just putting his hands in his shirt because he's cold. Uh, and yet uh, what ends up happening is that this uh, sheriff's deputy was placed on paid leave for choking mm -hmm. and slamming and beating him. Um, and the boy was hospitalized afterwards, right? Um, so all of this because wow. he was cold. And, 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 oh man, and, and the black officers helping him. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So again, we just, uh, you know, as we just even broach the topic, our black boys property of the state, mm -hmm. you know, you can see somewhat where I'm going with that in terms of how black boys are even perceived. Right. And this is the kind of treatment that can start as young as five years old, because according to some of the data, that's it's even at that age where black boys are seen and treated like they're much older than they actually are. You know, um, but you can see that, that it's not just about being perceived as older. It's also about being perceived as a threat. Chemistry, appreciate that support. Um, but I, I thought it necessary to kind of show uh, what we're looking at. We see a number of other police wow. coming in the room. They, they really need that many police for for uh, for uh, was it a thirteen year old boy? See that? Yeah, teenager. This boy was criminally assaulted. Really, mm -hmm. had to be hospitalized after this. Right. So, wow. Yeah. Let's see here. That's not what I wanted to do. Okay. Damn. Okay. Uh, interesting image that I thought uh, I would share as well. Right. Um, this country uh, has a very particular history when it comes to, especially black men, even when it's not stated out loud that that's what it is. But, you know, this uh, just to put into context uh the where what we're dealing with i'm gonna um i'm gonna see if i can bring this up because i wanted to tie this to something a little bit later the slide came up a little early 
Um, but again, you know, I don't mind showing it here as a reminder of you know the environment that we're in and the and the and the historical context of it. Right. So it, it, even though you're not going to see this kind of thing openly openly stated in many ways as as you might have seen at a different era, um, based on the last image we saw, you can see that the legacy of it went one way form or fashion still exists mm-hmm. um yeah so we'll, you can tell just by the previous image right this video that it still exists two hundred dollars a dozen mm-hmm. right um let's see i'm gonna skip through some of these pretty quickly you guys know amber heard apparently she's still gonna show up in aquaman 2 despite her treatment of, of johnny depp and the reason I, I bring that out is you know it's not i'm not really having a long conversation about Johnny Depp, but it's really about um, um, precedent and how these kind of things impact black males. So she is actually caught on uh, recorded devices, abusing him psychologically and physically, and yet uh, very little in terms of repercussions. And so you just kind of want to keep your eye on some of these things because uh, they definitely, again, set precedent for how any man can be affected Um this is uh, Hollywood and Harvard-educated film producer Charles Belk walking to his car to check the time uh, left on his parking meter when officers handcuffed him. 51-year-old who's produced NAACP Image Awards said the cops never told him why he was under investigation, didn't realize they had the wrong tall, bald head black male for six hours. Uh, it's one of those things that you hear about, um, you know, uh, but never think it would happen to you, according to Belk. That's at least what he wrote on his Facebook page, all because I was identified as the wrong tall, bald head black male. He was supposed to spend the night um, at a swanky Emmy, Emmy's party, not in a holding cell. Wow. So, you know, again, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, as long as you dress a certain way and you have the right degrees and you speak the king's English, these things don't happen to you. Uh, they only happen to a certain segment of the population. I know from personal experience that's not true but uh, in case you need these kind of examples here you go um let's see here black to film what's up good to see you in here d remedy appreciate that support um okay now transitioning out of this we're going to talk a little bit about um y'all i told you before we're going to do blackmail political agenda updates as they are as they occur uh, meaning that, it, you know, if I come up with something that needs to go, I think needs to go on that list or you send me something that has, has added to this list, I will cover it uh, on a regular basis. Because, again, I think that we need a platform and, and more than that, we need an agenda that we can articulate very clearly and in bulleted format uh, when necessary. I think um, when we have conversations in the black community about a black agenda, there's no assumption that black males may have distinct issues that are different from anyone else's, you know, uh, or that there might be something credible that can come out of that discussion. So that said, uh, I like to kind of, you know, put them up um, whenever I cover the latest addition to them, because I want you brothers to have these in your arsenal as something to consider. And as you reflect upon this and decide about what kind of political action to take uh, over the next number of years, uh, we actually have something to refer to you know, in regard to uh, where we're at. So, um, you know, as you can see, you know, in terms of the first eight, 
with mandatory DNA testing at birth. These are not listed in any particular order other than the order that uh, they, they came in. That's it. So it's not based on order of importance, uh, but family court reform in regard to, you know, child custody, uh, alimony, um, and different things of that nature, single sex education. This was one proposed by uh, Brother BGS. And uh, I think it's going to come up when we get to today's uh, latest addition to this list. Uh, targeted programs for black male homeless. Uh, much of that tends to be uh, something that impacts most, especially brothers getting out of prison. But in an instance in, like we're seeing now with COVID uh, and the economy we have, um, and I just I just drove by a brother pushing a cart to, you know, earlier today. So it, this is something quite prevalent um, that's impacting black men in, in, in extremely high numbers. Uh, I think a number so six, seven months ago, we found uh, that black men, black folk were half of the country's homeless. But uh, what people usually don't say is what percentage of that is black and male and not homeless in terms of you're sleeping on a friend's couch, but homeless in terms of you're living in a tent city. That tends to often be black male um, targeted programs dealing with unemployment, um, criminal sentencing reform, meaning that black men should not be hyper sentenced any more than any other group for the same crime. Um, Anti hyper incarceration policy, um, intimate partner violence and homicide policy reform, uh, meaning that evidence actually be proffered uh, rather than black men or, you know, going to, to being assumed to be guilty uh, just off the bat. Right. Uh, and then we have some later editions um, uh, that I've covered in, in previous shows about the Duluth model at fault divorce standards, um, you know, things of that nature. So you can look through, you can screenshot it if you need to. Ron, appreciate that support. Um, but definitely remember to reflect on. And it's not even a matter of whether or not everybody agrees on everything. It's more just getting a dialogue going about what's important. Um, let me see the latest page we have here, licensing law enforcement, uh, in terms of, um, you know, have uh, law enforcement having revocable licenses, uh, Bjorn appreciate that support, um, targeted cancer campaign, um, and treatment and recognition and targeted in terms of black, in terms of black males and their experiences with it. I talked about this in the last show, the percentages of, uh, diagnosed cancer, as well as um, mortality rates are extremely high to the point where, um, you know, black males tend to die most, um, comparatively speaking, from cancer. And we talked about this in light of Chadwick Bozeman. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to definitely talk about uh, some targeted work toward black men in that regard. Uh, small business support, as I said earlier, types of support that black men are not targeted for, despite that others are. But the latest edition for today, is the what we might refer to as the preparatory uh, reading slash STEM educational support uh, notion. And basically what this refers to is that, as you can see, we were proposing a percentage, 10% of city, state, and federally targeted resources that normally goes into incarceration be diverted into the creation of educational after-school programs, particularly targeted at ADOS Black boys, um, even uh, funds earmarked for special ed, uh, can be used to draft, uh, you know, male college level teaching assistants to create an all male uh, an all male educational support structure. Also provides tax breaks for private companies who may philanthropically donate materials, tech, etc. 
Um, and uh, lastly, that cable and internet companies um, be incentivized by federal slash tax policy or breaks to provide high free, a free high speed internet. Um, I wanted to shout BGS out for this because um, he helped me kind of flesh this out. But any thoughts to add to this, the importance of this or, or what's going on with it? Um, the importance is that that um, um, that these problems are solvable. OK, mm -hmm. with the with the tech, with the technology that we have, with the information that we have, with the uh, with the infrastructure that we have, these problems are solvable. OK. And the, the thing is, um, not only are they solvable, they can actually uh, cost you less money in the long run, because um, like I was telling you earlier, the. Uh, in California, it takes seventy seventy five thousand dollars to incarcerate an inmate in in a California prison. Okay, I said you could send him to, uh, you can get him a master's with that kind of money. Okay, mm -hmm. for one year of putting him in prison, you can keep, actually give a man a master's degree. And the thing is, is that if you just take ten percent, I was saying if you take just take a portion of it, ten percent, and they actually uh, dedicated to programs for for black boys. Um, you can actually reverse what was happening. I think you said the the percentage rate. I don't know where you got the the, the stat from. Where? Oh, well, we're gonna get into that. Okay. Well, the yeah. thing is, is that the uh, a lot of black boys are in uh, needl needlessly in special education. Um, they're needlessly uh, underscoring uh, in in performance metrics, and uh, the biggest reason is that the um, educational system is not geared for them. It's actually geared for a uh, for a white woman or for a white female mm -hmm. okay and if you go in order of importance white female white male uh black female black male um guess who gets out gets the lowest uh, uh portion of the stick which is black mm -hmm. males mm -hmm. and so if we really wanted to solve this problem um you would give it to the people that need it most which are black males but unfortunately those are the ones they ignored most and basically like i said these are several problems like um uh, Patrick Moynihan said that back in 1965, if you want to improve black black family life, you improve the, the improve the life of the black male. Mm -hmm. um, you give him uh, uh, give him uh, a masculine based education, masculine based jobs, masculine based training. You know, he said with uh, single sex schools, he said it with armed forces. Put him in a masculine environment that will actually change. And actually change the uh, change the environment, uh, uh, change the outcome of black boys, because even he said it back back then, uh, no matter what, 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 where, what, where a black boy starts, he, he escapes uh, poverty for one generation only. So you're always one generation away from going back down to the bottom where you were. And that was proven in the statistics. But I forget the economists that actually did that like a couple of years ago, where they actually proved that black boys are more prone to drop out of the class structure down to the bottom than any other group. Well, shout out to Grown Man Business and to MLR. Appreciate the support. Um, we got Art New Style in the building in, in the comment section. Shout out to you, brother. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, you're definitely right. And I think it's important we have this conversation because, uh, and the reason you'll see, you see reading in there, we'll get to reading in more detail in a moment, yeah. but it's, it's I tie it to STEM because obviously STEM field uh, STEM fields are the way are, are the way of the you, future. You, you can't do STEM if you can't do right. you can't read and you can't do higher level math. You right. can't do STEM. It's impossible. Exactly. Exactly. It's impossible. Well, and much of the data suggests too that you know with the increased amount of reading, 
uh, in the reading aptitude, we yes. see an increase in performance in regard to math and science as well. Because, right? So if you can't, if you can't, if you can't uh, do math, if you can't do reading and logic, because mm -hmm. mathematics is based on logic, if mm -hmm. you can't do uh, uh, logical reading, actually uh, uh, perceive what, you know, actually get uh, uh, information out of what you read and actually turn it into a logical uh, uh, problem, then you can't do STEM at all because mm -hmm. because uh, STEM is based on problem solving. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get the basics down, then you can't do STEM, which is probably why uh, the vast majority of students, much less black boys, can't do STEM. Mm -hmm. you, have, you basically mm -hmm. you have to before you even get to STEM, you have to prepare that that male uh, from the time he's in kindergarten to the time he gets to high school. If you don't do mm -hmm. that, he's not going to be able to do it. So, right. so STEM course is not going to be able to do, do do anything if you don't have candidates right. to be in them. And that's not even addressing the diminished confidence that boys will experience as they, you know, especially if they're passed up grade wise, but they don't have the requisite, requisite skills at each level, mm -hmm. the, the diminished confidence is going to affect their performance as well, which means that if and when they finish high school, they're still not apt to be able to compete or mm -hmm. have a willingness to, if they've, if they've already experienced years of being out of uh, the discussion, so to speak. But I do want to say this is in terms of what, inspired some of this because we're going to go into why I'm adding this to the black male political agenda, mm -hmm. a very targeted focus on black boys in education. Uh, what inspired it was uh, something that was posted to my page uh, on Facebook a few days ago, and that had to do with this image here. Mm. This is in Louisiana, right? And it's, the source of it is American Prison, a reporter's under, undercover journey into the business of punishment. Uh, it's a piece by Shane uh, Bauer. And basically what it talks about is that black women were said to be were, were put in cells with male prisoners and some became pregnant. In 1848, legislators passed a new law declaring that all children born in the penitentiary of African-American parents serving life sentences would be property of the state. Mm. The women would raise the kids until the age of 10, at which point the penitentiary would place an ad in the newspaper. 30 days later, the children would be auctioned off uh, on the courthouse steps for cash on delivery. The proceeds were used to fund schools for white children. Many of the black children were purchased by prison officials. Right. This image here, you know, looking at it, I saw my son, I saw myself, um, you know, I saw a million black kids that I grew up with and work with over the years. And yet very little conversation, not only about this particular legacy, but what ways the perceptions of black males have continued on to this era, right? Now, it, it, what we're looking at when we talk about property of the state, it doesn't necessarily have to be as formal as prisoners uh, who are giving birth to children in prisons that are used as slave labor, um, but a particular perspective on black males in general and a servile, underdeveloped position that many still serve in um, to this day. And this ties to what Tarian brought up earlier. Um, no, I don't know if I'm mispronouncing that as a Tarine. Uh, Tarine, Tarine, Tar yeah. Tarine, I'm sorry. Uh, what he brought up earlier, he actually was bringing this up here. Right? Parents outraged, uh, police show up at their home after their son's teacher complained about him waving a toy gun. Actually, he had a toy gun in his bedroom while he was attending class virtually. 
And from there, he was, uh, you know, he had the principal called on him. He was, uh, he was given, uh, or I think they tried to expel him. Uh, and then the police showed up at his family's door. And this is the kid in the middle here, right? Because he had a toy gun in his bedroom, mm -hmm. right? But the perception of this boy as something dangerous, as something that the authorities had to be called in on, right? Simply as he's attending class, right? That whole idea of black males being a threat and, and thus the, 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 the punishment industry Right, being having to be called in. Well, what is the punishment industry for black boys? What does that entail? What does it mean? Well, I mean, in in in, in interesting fashion, it often means juvenile punishment. It usually means a facility, right? And in that facility, it becomes a preparatory stage, mm -hmm. right, for the 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 prison uh, the school to prison pipeline, but for for future imprisonment in and of itself. But when you look at some of the arbitrary reasons for why some of this happens. It, it can be something as simple as this, right? And this is the legacy of that 1848 policy. It is the legacy of black boys being nothing but bodies for the state. It's the same idea where black boys are um, not considered really as human, but considered for just raw physicality, considered as dangerous, considered as threatening, and if anything, considered as useful in regard to uh, being cannon fodder. Which is where where the name human resource came from. Right. Please explain it. Please <laughs> Basically, it. They were they, the slaves were the human resources, the human machines that built the country. That's where mm -hmm. the name human resource came from. They they weren't looked at as humans. They were looked at as 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 as, uh, as animals, just more like like uh, like cows or pigs or something like that. They were looked at as resources. They weren't you were never looked at as as men. Uh, shout out to Gold Professor. Shout out to BP. Um, thanks for the support. When you think of human resources and you think of the bodies that are the machines of today, mm -hmm. um, we I think of prisons. Mm -hmm. I think of prison labor. I think of um, you know labor that not only has no union representation, um, but you know can have no payment at all, and nobody would be be the wiser. Even when prisoners have organized to try and complain. There's no there's no platform for that. Right. But again, this doesn't start in adulthood. I mean, we talk about incarceration and we talk about it in terms of you know what, how it impacts adult black males. But we often overlook that this starts much younger than this. No, oh, the school to prison pipeline. You know, they tell you it starts in the right. third grade. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can you can see it in the grades of, you know, fourth grade boys and beyond fourth grade and up. And you, you can see it as early as that. Um, but you also see it in their in the stories they tell about how they're treated in their classrooms mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But let's let's take it a step further. Again, going in on why I talked about um, this idea that I'm adding to the black male political agenda in regard mm -hmm. to reading and STEM preparation programs has to do with a piece I, I was shown and had a chance to look through by one Matthew Lynch. This is 2017 a Guide to Ending the Crisis Among Young Black Males. And one of the things he points out was was so it, it's not it's not a matter of, of a lot of the time what I find happens, at least for me, is I will be aware of something and then I'll see the data presented in a slightly different way. And and I and the next thing I know, my hands are shaking. You know what I mean? It, it, it's not about not knowing at it all. It's just about, 
you know, just seeing the data in a slightly different way that kind of reminds you of how visceral, you know, this treatment of black boys is. So according to Lynch, what he talks about here, he says only 10% of eighth grade black boys in the U.S. are proficient in reading. Now I want to stop there just for a second. Mm. One of the things I talked about, and you guys hear me say this, I repeat it damn near like a mantra every show, right? Is that in California, 70% of black boys are effectively illiterate in, in K through 12 system, 70%. And the largest university system in the country, the Cal State University system, 70% of black males, these are the black males that make it to the Cal State University system, 70% of them drop out their first year. But on a national scale, what we're looking at is that 10% of eighth grade black boys in the US are proficient in reading. So that means from kindergarten to eighth grade, only 10% are able to read on any kind of competent level on a national scale. And in, in urban areas like Chicago and Detroit, the number is even lower, right? How exactly do you compete when it comes to math and science? How exactly do you compete when it comes to joining, you know, going into STEM? I've had brothers that have commented on my show privately and publicly, and they said, well, Doc, you know, the answer is STEM fields. Mm -hmm. Everybody doesn't have to go to college. They can just go to STEM. You're overlooking STEM. I'm like, word. You know how bad it actually gets? Because I talked to uh, Officer Faulkner, right? You know mm -hmm. the reason that there's not more uh, black boys in the military? Mm -hmm. They can't pass the test. They can't read. So their way out could be the military, but they can't even read to pass the test. This is where we at. Which is something which is something that Monaghan said back in freaking 1965. How come you can't have more black men in the military? Because they can't read. Because they can't read. And then, and 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 the, I would say in previous eras, the reading level um was was higher because you could have males participating to different degrees, but I, I think when we talk about the post Brown versus Board uh, educational segregation that we've seen in black in, in communities, uh, I'd argue that it's been getting worse. But this, the next sentence is even just even as much you know is is just as striking. By contrast, the 2013 National Assessment of Education Progress found that 46% of white students are adequate readers by the eighth grade, and 17% of black students as a whole are too. Right. So there's a, a specially designated place for black boys. And I think we dramatically underestimate the impact of reading, right, on a on a long-term life scale. We underestimate how important reading is. And so this is why I wanted to introduce this on the Black Male Political Agenda, because if our kids aren't reading, there's almost a life sentence mm -hmm, that is. they are branded with. There's a, a scarlet letter that kind of gets attached to that because they're not able to participate or compete on an incredible level. So what would be simplistic solutions like, oh, let's just create STEM programs now become a whole nother problem mm -hmm. because you might be dealing with an adult black male. And I've seen this in my classes over the years. I've been teaching mm -hmm. for 22 years. I have seen young men who have learned who they have learned how to finesse others. They've learned soft skills about how to relate, how to make you feel good, how to laugh, how to do all of these kind of things, but to do it in a manner where they can, you know, can they they can actually slide by the fact that they can't read, and get you to not think about it. Uh, believe it or not, and this is a random example, but I remember an episode of the Cosby Show, 
mm-hmm. where Sammy Davis Jr. was a guest, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And he played an, an elder gentleman. Well, of course, he was an elder gentleman. Right. But he played one who was illiterate at his age. And he was so good at schmoozing people yeah. that they would, you know, he would be able to gloss over the fact that he couldn't read and actually get other people to do things for him to compensate for the fact that he could read. So you're talking about people who have highly adapted. You remember in the 80s, we used to be able to talk about, uh, you know, functional drug addicts. Right. You know, who could hold high level jobs, but they were essentially drug. It's, it's, it's not dissimilar from that. People were highly functional, but completely illiterate. And I think that situation has gotten worse, statistically speaking. But when you look at the percentages of other groups that can read compared to what's going on with black boys, um, it's dramatic. Right. Yeah. Any, and I, any reflection? I, Go ahead. I, and I think the the I think automation, especially when it comes to like the smartphone, is probably making it worse. Mm. Where you don't really have to read, you don't really have to spell. the 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 phone does a lot of work for you. You can actually speak into the phone instead of reading or writing or uh, processing information. So it's actually probably actually making it worse. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Officer Faulkner, let me know if you want to come on in. Um, uh, Red Pill Daddy, appreciate that support. Um, let's see. All right. Um, okay, so let me finish this. The achievement gap between two races is startling, but the difference between the NAEP report on black students as a whole and the stats on black boys is troubling. This is where the important dissection between at-risk groups needs to, t- to take place. It's not simply black children in general who appear to be failing in the basics like literacy. It is the boys. Now, this is what's important about what Matthew is saying here, because a lot of the time you guys hear me talk about flat blackness. Right. Flat, flat blackness, when you're talking about race, is a whole different concept. It refers to if you took me, you know, because this is something that Yvette Carnell talks a lot about. You know, when you talk about flat blackness in a racial context, it's the ways in which flattening the idea of blackness kind of erases the particular lineage experiences of different groups like ADOS, like, you know, Jamaican Americans or Nigerian Americans, so on and so forth. But flat blackness in a gendered context, the way I refer to it, I use it to talk about the ways that the black agenda is generalized for all black people, even if those who are disproportionately suffering are black males. And that gets swept under the rug. But when we do break out the data on gender, it's okay to particularize it to black girls, to black women, to LGBTs, but not when it comes to black males, be they young or old, and not when it comes to heterosexual black males. So again, because of this kind of intersectionality based identity calculus, Mm -hmm. heterosexual black males are to be ignored they are to be downplayed, even if they're the ones suffering the greatest. So when we talk about a population of girls, for for example, who uh, transition into womanhood and, and tend to be the demographic that is most highly enrolled in higher education, we're not talking about reading programs that need to happen for them in K through 12 because they don't need them. Right. And if you're not allowed to bring up the boys, then the discussion just doesn't tend to happen. But how in the hell do you have a 70% illiteracy rate in an entire state, one of the states that has an economy that surpasses many countries in the world, like California, mm-hmm. and yet nobody's talking about this? And then on a national scale, you have about 10% that are proficient in reading. And there's yeah. no out. Have you heard any outcry about this? Yeah, this, it's a social crime in a first world country. I mean, if if this if this was any place else in the world, it'd be an, it would be an uh, international outrage. 
But well, and and this is the thing. Even in our own community, it would be an internet. It, it would be an outrage. I mean, it. it and I be. said this in my last show. Can you imagine what would happen, right? If we woke up tomorrow morning and even our girls were were reading at black male levels, what would our families do? How would that be perceived? Right. This goes into the whole notion of you know. This is something I saw in my generation coming up. The black girls were sent to college. The black mm-hmm. boys were sent to get to get jobs. Yeah. Right. The the focus on leadership for the next generation, the focus on who the edu- the resources should go into as far as educational advancement, were fixated on the girls. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, I've even seen this in my my own family. I have I have very close family members, female family members, who were given computers, who were you know transitioned into community college while still in high school. You know, there was a. Fo- for me, it was just like, well, the, the black women have a network, and the black men are not allowed to have one, absolutely. even even amongst our own community, mm-hmm. because if there's a black male network, then the women want to come in and take it over. Yeah, because you can't have anything earmarked for boys, and that's no. the, that's the other thing. You know, it's it's treated as if you focus and target it on the boys, it is inherently a disrespect and an attempt at at, at, at you know maligning black girls or women. That's the basic assumption. It's not even up for dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's just merely the assumption. I mean, I've presented at academic conferences on you know black boy targeted research, and the very first question I will get ninety percent of the time is, well, "Why didn't you talk about black girls?" Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've talked about this. I will count them in the book. In the in you know when you go to a conference, you know some conferences they'll give you a book of everybody who's presenting mm-hmm. and what they're presenting on and what rooms they'll be in. I will every time I go to a conference, the night I get there. I pull that book out, sit at the desk in my hotel room, and I literally count how many presentations are on black males. And what I have found in the last five years, I just started counting five years ago, is that there are generally 10 times as many projects at these conferences that are on black girls and women uh, than there are on black boys and men. And yeah. when you go to the when you go to the panels for black girls and women, it's all women. When you go to the panels for boys, there's this idea that the panels have to be diverse. So if you're not dealing with girls or you don't have women or girls present, that you're inherently contributing to whatever problem in regard to sexism or misogyny is is on the table. But there's none of that that's brought to these presentations on black girls and women. So black boys yet again find themselves not part of the discussion. And yet, look at the data that we're presenting on what boys are experiencing. Yeah, that was the reason for the uh, for the Kerner Commission, because, like I said, uh, when when we shifted from more of an agricultural or uh, uh, to a uh, to an industrial based uh, society, what they found out is that the black the black men who rarely uh, 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 graduated from high school, I think back then when they were looking at it, I think the uh, graduation rate for black men was like maybe 22 percent from high school. And the, the, so these boys were to normally drop out like the, the seventh or eighth grade weren't uh, educated enough to actually get these factory jobs. We're not talking about STEM. We're not talking about mm-hmm. uh, uh, talk about the university jobs. We're not talking about corporate jobs, just regular right. factory jobs. They right. were not educated enough to actually have those jobs, which mm-hmm. is why they made that big push in, in the late 60s and in the 70s and part of the 80s to actually increase the education of black men because – if you go all the way back to the uh, Mohawk Conference of 1890, they had determined that it was not, not necessary to mm-hmm. educate black men. It was not necessary to, to teach black men to read. Mm-hmm. 
that skill would lie within their, the, the black women. Mm -hmm. We teach them to read, teach them to write, teach them to do that because they said they had to educate their children and 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 uh, finance the house, basically rent, uh, uh, um, uh, do the bills and 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 uh, finance the house, run the household. So mm -hmm. all the black man had to do was basically learn a trade, go to work, and hand over his check to mm -hmm. the wife, which is something that I saw that most black men saw back in the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, even the seventies. And I've mm -hmm. had uh, had uh, women that I work with talk about their husbands when they were young mm -hmm. that um, the, the husband would be working at a factory and they you know they they have a, a pay shack right a, a paymaster shack like just inside the fence of the of, of the of the uh, of the factory where they're at right where people would go pick up the checks mm -hmm. he said there was a line of black women every Friday to come pick up their husband's check mm -hmm. Because mm. they're the ones that would have to write out the bills and 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 do the kind of paperwork because the, the their husbands were not educated to the same degree they were. So this right. is an ongoing problem. So this is just a reflection of what what, what has always been. But now we're transitioning into a, and in I'm sorry, go ahead into a new society, mm -hmm. into a new society where you where you cannot even get a job unless you can meet certain criteria and now right. we have to backtrack because this is a travesty right. this should have this should have been taken care of back in 1968 this this should not happen mm -hmm. but and, and I'm, I'm glad you introduced that because we you know i'm not i want to be clear i'm not highlighting this as an arbitrary thing that is just happening to black boys and it's bad this is a very targeted and purposeful mm -hmm. uh agenda as far as underdeveloping black males. And I've talked about this repeatedly, especially from the 1960s and 70s onward, I argue has been a direct response to the civil rights movement or any type of black activism in general. To undermine the boys, to advance the girls, that is the crux of what I call the promotion demotion thesis. Uh, it, it By separating that community out and then allowing other groups who have different ideologies when it came to whether it was feminism, LGBT theory, and activism, student movements, all of these in the 70s became a, a, a convenient way of further underdeveloping any type of black activist front by separating people along a, what we might call a very... Um, uh, early draft of, you know, intersectionality that had, you know, that has justified the separation of the community along these ideological lines. So I don't look at what's going on with black boys as accidental. Uh, I think especially when you look at Jim Sedanius's work and his treatment of outgroup out, out males, it mm -hmm. definitely speaks to a very targeted agenda, but it's one we have data on and we can highlight how impactful it is. Uh, shout out to Black Uru Strikes. I appreciate you spreading the word for the support Please support the channel. Um, and I also want to shout out Triggerman, Ibmore. Appreciate that support, man. Uh, but the, let me continue because there's more I want to show you. Uh, some of this you know, but it's still good to put numbers to it, right? So, uh, and this is still part of the article by Matthew Lynch, right? Did you know that black boys are more likely than any other group to be placed in special ed classes with 80% of all special ed students being black or Hispanic males? Black boys account for 20% of U.S. students labeled as mentally retarded, even though they represent just 9% of the population. On the other end of the extreme, black boys are two and a half times less likely to be classified as gifted and talented, even if their academic record shows that potential. I'm not surprised. You have not, any experience with that, sir? 
<laughs> in some uh, way, shape, or form. Uh, you know what? Um, I had to fight really hard to keep my uh, my son out of special education mm-hmm. because uh, he was in kindergarten. The two things they wanted to do: put him in special ed and give him Ritalin mm-hmm. because they say he was too hyperactive. He wasn't paying mm-hmm. attention. Mm-hmm. And this was in kindergarten. This wasn't third mm-hmm. grade. It's kindergarten. His first semester of kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. This is a uh, targeting of, of, of black males, right? And the thing is, the thing is, his mother was was ready to go along with it, mm-hmm. and I had to pitch a fit for that not to happen. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Green Gorilla, the G with the PhD. He's in the, in the in the comment section. He said the uh, bill to establish the Commission on the Social Status of Black Men and Boys is passed. So shout out for that bit of information. No, absolutely. And I've told this story before. The same happened with my son in two weeks into kindergarten. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried the same thing. I remember when I came to have a meeting with the teacher, you know, my son sat next to me and she made us wait for about 10, 15 minutes before she came and sat down. But apparently she was looking at us from the other room. And the very first question she asked me was, does he always act this way when you're around him? And I said, what way? Well, he's just sitting there. And I was like, what do you, well, in my class, he's, you know, he's a terror. He's running around. He's doing this and doing that. I said, okay. The next few weeks, I would come in unexpectedly and sit in the class because, you know, I had the time, which unfortunately a lot of other parents don't, you know, and I would come in and sit in and I would notice that, you know, to the extent that he was out of his chair and and this is kindergarten, Mm -hmm. right? He's five. But to the extent that he is out of his chair, I didn't notice a difference. Matter of fact, I would catalog it. I didn't notice a difference between how often he was up and around and how often the other kids were, particularly the white kids. The difference was in the teacher's response, Mm -hmm. right? She was far more affirming and what I call, she gave a lot of what I call tactile approval. She would walk up and touch the kids that she felt were doing well or she felt weren't challenged enough by the material. But more and more, I noticed her treatment of black and brown kids was different. She wouldn't give that tactile approval. Now, I understand that doesn't sound like much, but when you're five years old, right, you might have an emotional reaction to this and not know how to articulate it. And this is the behavior that she was engaged in when I'm sitting in the room, right? So when I'm not in the room, my five-year-old can't tell me, you know, the particular things that he's noticing happening in the class. But nonetheless, this is something I can see. So in that very first meeting, again, she tried to put him in the special ed and she suggested that I get him on Ritalin. Mm-hmm. Now, none of that did he need. I mean, within a year and a half, he was, you know, reading 700 page Harry Potter books cover to cover. Top top one to two in every class he's in. But he's you know, you want to send him into special ed. Right. And if you, you know, if you already don't know what the special ed agenda is, it may force you to ask, well, how many other black boys were sent? It didn't belong there. Yeah. No. And, and the thing is, and they get, they, they're incentivized to put black boys in special ed. Mm-hmm. Just like this. Uh, now, I mean, you've, you've heard this before where, um, where they will get the, the, the female to actually co-sign on putting them in special ed and putting them on a, a medication because they will get a check. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we incentivize, incentivize the, the repression of black males by not only by, by the white teachers, but also by our, our own women mm-hmm. instead of doing the opposite. Well, and you can see the difference in, in terms of the opposite in the treatment of girls. Mm. All right. We don't see the requisite numbers, but 
Uh, there's still more. Uh, this next slide, this is actually out of a different uh, report, Overrepresentation of African-American Males in Special Ed Programs, Implications and Advocacy Strategies for School Counselors. Right? This was a piece done by a teacher, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, current statistics indicate that African-American boys represent only 9% of the total student enrollment in public schools, yet in the category of mental retardation, their enrollment percentage is more than double. In other categories, such as emotional disturbance and learning disability, African-American males are again overly represented, accounting for 21 and 12% respectively, U.S. Department of Ed. Right? Mm -hmm. This is what we're looking at. And so when we go to the charts, right, percentage of public school students who received out-of-school suspensions by race and ethnicity and sex, and this is the hard part. You know, it, it's not always, you don't always find the data, you know, disaggregated by gender, right? You'll see it, you know, they, they might do it racially, uh, but it, to find it done racially and in terms of gender isn't always easy. Um, you know, and some of the some of the charts that just really give you some in-depth information are not broken up by gender. But when we do see what we can, uh, what what can we make out here? Any thoughts on this? I mean, <laughs> like you said, they they always uh, you can see that the males are far higher than the females, and higher than any other group, and higher than any other group. Yeah, absolutely, seventeen point six. Right. In fact, the in fact the black females are closer to the norm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Closer yet, to the. Go ahead. No, closer to the norm of, of the other uh, other of the other uh, races people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, exactly. Um, this is a slightly older one, and I put this in a in a, a blog piece I wrote some years ago. But I thought it worth revisiting: um, representation of black males in U.S. schools versus special ed. Mm -hmm. Right, 2011-2012. Uh, you can see how it breaks down in terms of public schools and special ed. Right. Yeah. According yeah. to U.S. Department of Education. Uh, let's see. And they get they get more money for special ed students. In mm -hmm. fact, I think they get twenty five mm -hmm. to thirty percent more for special ed students. So it incentivizes um, schools that actually put these these black boys into these programs. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Exactly. You know. And then one of the things I'll hear people say is, "Well, you know, we just need our own schools," which I, I you know, of course, agree with. But uh, you know, what is the main problem that tends to impact us over and over again when it comes to that subject? I mean, we, we can identify some some schools in different places, black mm -hmm. schools that have done some excellent work. I think we yeah. uh, I think Marcus Garvey in L.A. is a great example of that. But what is the, the most consistent and plaguing issue when it comes to independent schooling um, for funding. black folk? Funding. Yeah. Money. Yeah. And, Money. Yeah. And we're talking about a group that uh, that suffers from, you know, a lack of wealth particularly inherited wealth, which is where the majority of wealth is passed down. Um, and we're not even talking about the wealth among families when, when families merge in terms of marriage, right? Uh, you know, a lot of the time, shout out to uh, Kevin Samuels, when we talk about marriage, um, among other groups, marriage becomes a very strategic thing mm -hmm. of aligning families along the lines of wealth. Right. Uh, that, that's not necessarily a practice we hear about in the black community in the same kind of way. We tend to marry for love, and uh, that is the extent to which um, that is, you know, if we're going to talk about marriage at all, it's usually love based. But marriage has been declining for decades, primarily because of the impact on mm -hmm. wealth. On wealth, right? yes. 
which is why we were calling for family court reform, because it doesn't necessarily stay in the family in a constructive way, but it ends up becoming something that black males, um, you know, have to uh, suffer from, you know. So then that said, you know, whether we're talking about inherited wealth, whether we're talking about wealth through family and marriage, uh, whether we're talking about wealth in terms of, you know, what we, what assets we own, uh, this has been a long-term or one of the major long-term impacts of having limited wealth is that it, it doesn't, you're not, able to provide the kind of intimate, not intimate, but distinct and specific resources necessary at a given point in time, like independent schools. I mean, if that was the case, we'd have independent black schools in every city across the country that black folk live in. But um, we're often struggling along those lines. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, you know? Even 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 a lot of the schools that have started independent actually had to close for lack of funding. Absolutely. Lack of money. Lack Absolutely. Lack of funding, lack of funding yeah. and and, uh, and and low teacher pay because they couldn't get the teachers. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the things that's actually deferred many black men from going into teaching. And you're socially expected to still provide and protect, but you mm -hmm. don't have the means going into an industry that is known for paying um, below market value is, has long-term effects. Um, and I'm not going to talk about, you know, Dr. Umar Johnson in any kind of negative way, but I think one of the things we can say in looking at, uh, what's been going on with his push for a, a black male school, uh, if nothing else, uh, how much it actually takes mm -hmm. to develop a school and maintain it. Uh, if the, if we don't walk away with anything else, and again, I'm not going to disparage the brother, but I'm just simply going to say, if we don't walk away with nothing else, just how much it takes and, and how consistently and, and the, what the infrastructure needs to be for that kind of thing to right. be maintained, exactly. it, that, should have, that should teach us quite a bit. Um, let me see. So here you can see race and gender out of school suspensions. Again, broken down by race and gender. Right. So. Wow. <laughs> right. So 20 percent of boys uh, and the closest you get to that are uh, Native American boys. Right. Um, but again, and some and some of the things you'll see bits of this data presented in very questionable ways. If you look at the African-American Policy Forum, which is kind of a black feminist think tank. Mm -hmm. I remember they were put out charts some years ago where they'd say, you know, black girls are the most suspended group in yes. the country. Right. And really what they were saying was black girls are the most suspended group of girls. But they would take out the of girls, right, mm -hmm. to highlight right. the need of black girls. But again, we, we weren't going to talk about how they were actually transitioning into college in record numbers. And we weren't going to talk about what the boys rates were. So as you can see here, when you actually show the data, the boys are twice as bad off. Yeah. And the thing is, that, <laughs> that's funny. Like you were saying, uh, it's flat black when when uh, when it's negative, but it's not uh when they want when they want resources, they want to feel pitied. It's flat black. When it's um, when it's something that's positive, it's something that they really want. Then they actually separate it out. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, we'll we'll use your oppression to work for us. Absolutely. When it's convenient. When it's convenient. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, it, you might see charts where they'll say something like thirty percent of black kids are are you know suffer from out of school suspensions, and mm -hmm. we need to really target the, what our girls experience. And I'm not saying we don't need to target our girls. I'm not saying that at all. I definitely think we need to. You know, I want to be clear about that because I think a lot of the times, when, especially in these spaces on social media where black men have begun to, 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 to center 
themselves in a particular way. Um, any kind of critique of black women and girls is taken as an attack. That's not what this is about. It's about the disingenuous way that black boys have been eliminated from certain key conversations. And yes, sometimes even by black women, even academics, even scholars, but also black men, you know, in Mm, terms of supporting this kind of feminist agenda of centering girls. And again, using this intersectionality based identity calculus, the ways in which black males, particularly boys, are made invisible in the discussion is is offensive the thing is what i don't understand is that um when it when it comes to everybody else they're supposed to get government help uh community help and everything else when it comes to black males black males are supposed to pull their own selves up by the bootstrap in other words we're supposed to offer our way through it absolutely when nobody when nobody else does And I hear from a lot of brothers that will do that very thing when we raise these discussions. We will try to alpha our way through it. You know, well, we shouldn't be vulnerable. We shouldn't point out our vulnerabilities. We just need to, you know, just suck it up, take it and walk it off. And it's like these are systemic issues that are that are multi-generational. Yeah. This is not you can't walk this off. It, it doesn't you know, it doesn't work like that. It, it requires an institutional and systemic response it 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 can't be kind of muscled together uh on an individual basis unfortunately uh here's another right in terms of discipline transform crdc makes public long hidden data about which students are suspended expelled and arrested in schools so desperate discipline rates and you can see this one is particularly by race but when it comes to so blacks are black folks are, are the ones all in red so out of school out of school suspensions are actually you know, the highest, you have expulsions at a fairly high rate just following that. And then in-school suspensions and uh, single out-of-school suspensions are equal, uh, followed by overall enrollment. You know, so you can see the kind of breakdown here for that. Um, Yeah, and this one's just broken down by uh, race as well. right, but nevertheless, uh, the impact is particularly telling either way right yeah so the, the, the thing is is that if you if you can't get the basics down it's like anything else if you can't get the basics down then all the other programs like stem and going to the military all the other remedies that were actually more advanced aren't going to work mm-hmm. because the, the biggest thing is 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 uh, the lack of candidates for even filling spots i, I think i was talking to uh brother our new style Mm-hmm. They have, they have, they, they, they're trying to hold, uh, they're trying to hold uh, uh, scholarships for black males, but they don't have enough candidates because of what you just saw. Mm-hmm. There's not enough qualified candidates to even get the scholarships that are there. Mm-hmm. But it's funny too, because the way that's then interpreted is mm-hmm. it's not interpreted as, okay, you know, the lack of candidates is also a systemic response, I mean, a right. systemic uh, result. And right. therefore we need to remedy it with a systemic response. The, the view is, oh, well, if there's a lack of candidates, it just means that these black men aren't trying hard enough. Right. And then, and then I'll have conversations with black educators who will tell me, well, we just, you know, we, our boys are just not trying hard enough. That's they, they need to, they need to suck it up. And, and I'm like, how do they suck something up that's been going on since they've been in the womb? Right. You know, if, if everybody else is doing well and they're not, you got two ways of interpreting that. Either there's an inherent uh, problem with the boys, which tends to be a conservative 
uh, white kind of response to it, mm-hmm. or there's actually a systemic issue at play in terms of how many boys have access, what the particular barriers are they face, especially in regard to disproportionately negative treatment, uh, low expectations, so on and so forth. Um, but instead of looking at that, we will always you know, kind of problematize this on an individual level and make it the boy's fault. Yeah, I mean, children. We're not talking about grown men. We're talking about children. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how can it be a, 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 a kindergartner's fault? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can yet, you, how can yeah. you brand a kindergartner? Because once you're in the like a special, special ed uh, uh, program, basically you almost never get out. Mm-hmm. So you're dooming a, a say if you had like my child, your son, and my son have been allowed to actually take put a, be put on Ritalin and put, put in special ed, they'd have never gotten out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yet, uh, you know, I, I find the number of people that are willing to look at that um, and take it, uh, you know, seriously is always a little striking to me because it's never quite as um, widespread as I would hope, even amongst those who study this. You know, uh, I'm often kind of blown away at the treatment of boys. And I've told this story several times. But yes, I've gone to conferences, and when it comes to the discussion on black boys, mm-hmm. the you know it, it, I will see academics speaking colloquially about mm-hmm. black boys from personal experience, and and that would be fine if it's measured up against some kind of data. But even that isn't always happening, and you know in a number of key conferences I've attended, it's been more um, just about well, you know the boys need to try harder. Um, I mean, look at the girls, they're doing well. And that's kind of the other thing that happens. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's treated as it can't be a racial issue. Yes. If the girls are doing well. Yes. Therefore, instead of looking at, instead of saying there might be a targeted response to black boys, the answer is, well, the black boys are either inherently deficient or they're not trying hard. I think, yeah, I think it's more they're inherently deficient. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, depending on who you talk about, like, like, like you said, it's it's always the black boys fight either biologically or or, or socially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not trying hard enough, or they're defective. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of things I want to add. For those who don't know, I had a chance to be on uh, Gus uh, Gus's show, The Cows: Context of White Supremacy, and he talked about a professor whose research. Um, I, I've used, I, you know, uh, whose work I've respected, uh, but he talked about her research in regard to black males. And one of the things he pointed out was he, he had her on his show. Her name is Athena Matua, and mm-hmm. she's the author of a number of things. But one of the texts that I've used from her is Progressive Black Masculinities. And I, I you know, it was one of the first books that came out that, that I, I particularly appreciated because uh, it was breaking from the traditional uh, intersectionality model and attempting to explain black males outside of that because, um, you know, she was recognizing that there's something more going on that intersectionality couldn't explain. So I appreciated her willingness to do this, especially as a black feminist. Um, you know, she was one of the first that I saw, you know, really kind of push that. Um, and so uh, apparently when she interviewed on his show, Mm-hmm. Um, he asked her about the existence of black male privilege. And her answer was, despite being one of these, you know, groundbreaking, you know, feminists who was willing to entertain that what's going on with black males is not being adequately explained, right. um, you know, by feminist theory. 
she proffered the idea that black male privilege still existed, mm -hmm. but she couldn't explain how and she couldn't give any, <laughs> any examples that were rooted in the data. And that, you know... I was on a show just last, just yesterday, uh, when uh, the Roger Report, shout out to the Roger Report. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a question in Facebook about black male privilege, right? Because somebody put a post up where, um, where, uh, uh, where she said that black males had privilege. And so he asked her where was it and how they actually uh, use their privilege. She couldn't answer it. So he went and asked 100 women that he knew personally. Did they believe black male privilege existed? And, and they all said yes. And same thing that you just said. But they couldn't prove it. They couldn't identify it. They couldn't mm -hmm. uh, actually show uh, any existence of it. But they all agreed that it existed. See, and, and you know what it is? It's, 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 it's really uh, the residue of white feminism, right? Because mm. when feminism was introduced to black women, uh, it, it came with a material as to uh, material incentivization, right? Mm -hmm. If you work with black feminism, yeah. you'll be able to get jobs. I mean, yeah. it, so it, it was, it was especially after the, the civil rights movement, um, there was no way in the world that relatively poor black women weren't going to go along with what feminism was proposing because it offered, you know, tangible benefits, but with the philosophy and ideology of feminism, what it also argued in, re in regard to this whole conversation is that men were men across gender. Right. Uh, matter of fact, shout out to Chadwick Boseman. I was just watching uh, his film Marshall the other day. And, um, you know, if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend going, go watch Marshall, go watch the James Brown film, go watch 42. Don't just limit yourself to black Panther. Uh, Chadwick was quite talented. Uh, but one of the things he pointed out in Marshall, there was one of the guiding themes to the film is that men were men and women mm. were women. But this was used in an inverse fashion in, in, in a philosophical discourse, meaning, I mean, in the feminist discourse, meaning that um, all men were, were the same. Mm -hmm. And white men and black men all enjoyed the same patriarchal position of exploiting women for their own benefit. And I've had feminist students that will tell me what they've learned in other classes, that this has gone since the beginning of time. So men have been patriarchal oppressors since the beginning of time. And because they're all men, they're all the same. But the data and the history tells us different. Even what we've covered just tonight, if you don't read anything else, right? Mm -hmm. It shows you that there is no similarity. You know, whether you're talking across racial lines, across class lines, you know, age, health. I mean, there's so many different categories. Mm -hmm. Men are not the same. They're not, a, they're not a monolith by any means. But to take on this kind of monolithic position as feminists, to make the argument that black men were the same as white men, and therefore we need to take the same posture with black men that white women take with white men, right? That position unto itself set this already split the black community. Mm -hmm. Just it, just that alone caused a massive rift, right? Where black men somehow became the enemy right. uh, in alignment with white men. And you've never seen historically where black men and white men have aligned themselves together to oppress women. It hasn't worked. It's not realistic. There's no historical basis for it. And yet that argument people were comfortable with going with. Mm -hmm. But the irony to all of this, right, is that white women at that same time period made themselves you know, the most the most significant minority. They did. Right. So so affirmative action, you know, policies benefited them more than any other group, including black yeah, women. Group. Yeah. But black women got counted twice 
you know, so they were still able to count as women and as black. And so there was incentive, particularly for federal and private institutions to prioritize hiring them for jobs. So in that way, white women and black women were able to benefit materially and institutionally from this new racial calculus that's taking place. Right. At, at the expense of whom? At the expense of black men. Because there's only so many jobs to go around. Who do you take the jobs from? Mm hmm. So white exactly. women, white women got black men's jobs and and black women got to develop a new behavior, mm -hmm. particularly in the late 70s. But it really it really came out in the, in the 80s of not needing a man. Mm -hmm. Right. This, and you heard them say it like a mantra. You don't need no man and niggas ain't shit. Those two mm -hmm. mantras went hand in hand mm -hmm. and they were both predicated not only on the same idea of black male inferiority, they were also linked to the institutional benefits yes. of being able to navigate society without having to negotiate with men, which is what any other group of women have to do within mm -hmm. their own racial strata. Right. right. Yet black women were liberated from having to negotiate with their men, because when you talk about a relatively poor community, it really doesn't take much to it incentivize much. any one group to see itself as better. I mean, that takes like a generation. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, basically welfare, Section 8, child support, mm -hmm. uh, corporate jobs, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically uh, preferential uh, education, because really, if you if, if a woman really wants to go to uh, go to school, school, all she has to do is have a baby. Mm -hmm. She'll get grants, she'll get loans, she'll get scholarships, get all kinds of just so she can go to school. Mm -hmm. So if she has nothing else going on. Um, uh that the very least she can have a baby and get all those benefits mm -hmm. while the father will most likely be hounded for child support and probably go be, get put in jail. Absolutely. And this is it, it, man. Oh my goodness. Mm. Sometimes I gotta, I gotta breathe it. I gotta breathe it out. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta breathe it out. It's, it, it, it's amazing to me how impactful that shift was. Mm-hmm. In terms of, and, and this is something that happened within my lifetime. Um, uh, shout out, I'm gonna shout out. Uh, well, BGS has done this in his work for the last five years. Um, Valdez has had a couple of key um, videos where he's talked about the generational differences between black boomers, black generation X, black millennials. Uh, but the one that comes out, uh, you know, most in my mind, listen to the discussion between Kevin Samuels and Minister Jap when he talks about dating in the 90s. Mm. And don't let the title fool you. It's not limited to dating. But one of the things that, that Kevin actually begins to do is he begins to talk about the, the, the kind of worldview shift mm -hmm. that happens in the 1980s and the 1990s and the early 2000s, well, not even early, in the 2000s. Across a 30-year span, he talks about the attitudinal shifts mm -hmm. among black women and black men. And he does an excellent job of it because, you know, it, it, I grew up in the same time period, but he's a little older. So even through the 1990s, you know, I spent much of the 1990s as a student, but Kevin spent it more as an adult navigating marriages and different things of that nature, uh, as well as BGS. So they're, they're connecting the data to their own personal experiences. And, and in that particular discussion, it's an excellent breakdown on what some of the major shifts was. And they happened in such short order. Mm -hmm. You know, I, when you grow and this is something I talked to my father about, because I remember I was explaining the 1970s to him from a, a black masculinist standpoint. Uh, and I'll break that down a little bit in a moment. 
but you know, he had not really heard the 70s explained in that way. And he said, you know, that's interesting. You're saying this to me. He said, because we experienced it. But, you know, when you're going through, when you're experiencing history, right. you don't you don't have the benefit of, you know, hindsight. Right. Um, and, and, and I want to highlight what we're going through now with COVID. You know, my students, I'm trying to tell them you're living history. You're not going to understand this for another 20, 30 years. But it's the same kind of thing that's happened in past generations from the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s. There were so many shifts that took place that if you yeah. grew up in it, it, it's hard to really kind of explain it and understand it until somebody who's capable does it for you and gives you some perspective. And then you can fill it in, fill in the gaps with your own experiences. So listen to that discussion if you haven't had a chance to. And it really highlights how these 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 shifts impacted mm-hmm. yeah. the black community. Yeah, we basically, uh, you know, crack just dropped a nuclear bomb in the middle of the black community. Mm-hmm. And basically just started destroying the family structure because it actually changed the way women uh, dealt with themselves socially, but also sexually and also uh, even uh, on the job. Mm-hmm. They actually literally uh, cut asunder the whole black family. Well, and, 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 and I got to shout out Kevin Gim in, in terms of that, because one of the things he pointed out was, the specific use mm-hmm. of um, of corporate tactics when it come, mm. came to dating and mating. Mm. And that was really interesting because he highlighted how, you know, black women who were, were recently being welcomed into the corporate world began using really kind of corporate raider or corporate culture uh, in how they navigated relationships. You mm-hmm. know, and one of the hilarious examples he gave was the way they did this when it came to, you know, rooting out men that they might marry. He said, he, he said the way, you know, in the mid 1990s, the way they went about that was you would get an interview. It wasn't mm-hmm. a date. It was an interview. And, and it was very, it was a very, it had a very corporate feel to it. And I remember that myself, but I didn't, you know, again, I'm going through that time period as a young man experiencing it. So it didn't dawn on me, you know, what the major generational shifts were and how they were happening. It didn't dawn on me while it was occurring. But it was very much tied to um, this this kind of culture that they had been given access to um, it, uh, due to affirmative action policy and the in the ways in which they incorporated that into how they dealt with their own men. You know, well, you, you know the thing is, is that it started like in the mid 80s mm-hmm. and uh, uh, with, um, I think, William Julius Wilson, he, he was doing that work about uh, uh, marriageable what what a marriageable black man was and the mm-hmm. qualification he that he had and then um i know you saw those the dating shows where that that uh black women were single because they couldn't find uh, uh parallel mates mm-hmm. that were on that that's where mm-hmm. they're the, on that level came from in the mm-hmm. mid 80s right and then and then that's that's where it started and it's kind of ballooned in, ever since from you know into the 90s into the 2000s and continuing where mm-hmm. Where uh, what they call a sort of mating, whereas before mm-hmm. that it didn't matter if if Mama had a uh, had a had a master's degree and 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 Daddy was a was a plumber mm-hmm. or a mechanic. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, she's educated. He goes out and makes money. They bring the two families together, the two, two halves together, and they make a family. Now black men had to qualify mm-hmm. at that level. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, I need a, that's why I need a guy on my level. I need a guy that's educated. I need a guy that's that's corporate and the guy to that, that uh, has a certain kind of status. Mm-hmm. Whereas before it didn't matter before. 
And that, well, was, and, the, that was the first generation, I think Generation X, where that was actually more important. Right. And, and that's the key, right? The, the transition from boomers to Generation X, that's mm-hmm. where you saw that. And, but it was also, I need a man who has, the, you know, the requisite degrees that I have. Yes. Right. So education, yeah. which, again, had only in the late 70s be, be, really began, really opened up to black women in a different way. Right. Even though in terms of the data, black black men have never gotten more degrees than black women in a given year in American history. Right. But despite that, it opened up in a whole new way in the 70s and 80s for black women. So this arbitrary idea that a man is not good enough unless he has the same level degrees mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. became a huge split because the irony there is you had blue collar brothers that might have been making more money. Right. Even in the 80s, then educated black women without the school loan debt, and yet they were still not good enough. So the so the you know so the model for what the appropriate man was 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 often based on a white corporate model, it based was. on the white mm-hmm. men they they associated with. If in a session, feminism turned to a black woman into white women. Damn. Literally, literally, the same kind of speak. And then you get, you know, then you get the color purple and you get all these, the, the uh, uh, Terry McMillan and what kind of man you should have the, the waiting to excel crowd because mm-hmm. that was popular during then. They said exactly the same thing. How do you qualify a man? What should which he is, have? You know, again, which is why it's so important to me when, you know, Oprah Winfrey says she's going to reintroduce the color purple for a new mm. generation. Right. Um, I know what it did. To my generation, what it can do, you know, what it contributed to again. I mean, Oprah and her channel or her, her, her show at that time was the, the kind of spigot for what was a very elite kind of black feminist conversation in university hallways and classes. Mm-hmm. And, and that mainstreamed a lot of that kind of, uh, you know, black feminist uh, speech. And it helped to contribute to this culture that we're talking about. But I also think about it in terms of how black men have literally uh, survived or died. You know, again, earlier today when I showed the video of uh, the six generations of black women, right? Mother, I mean, daughter to mother and so on and so forth. Uh, I, I thought it poignant because this and this is really not about that particular family. It's not. I just thought the optics of that video was powerful mm-hmm. to see six generations of black women in a gathering, family gathering of some sort, you know, celebrating the longevity of their family. And I couldn't help but ask the question, how many of those women have men? Do the men, are, are the men even still alive? Ask how many, how many ask stories have we heard about, you know, big mama is the center of the family. But when you talk about granddad, he died 30, 40 years ago. Uh, I have never met my grandfather. My grandfather, I've never met. My, my maternal grandfather, I've never met him. And but and, and but then we also don't reflect on what that means. And in fact, it gets to the point that I barely know. Uh, my mother has barely talked about her father. See, this. this go ahead. No, I was going to say this is typical. How many? How many? How many black men can actually trace their 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 paternal line all the way back more than mm-hmm. two generations? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The names are like erased. Uh, real quick, 413 um, watching. Please like, share, subscribe. I want to get my subscribers over 10,000 soon if I can. So please help out with that endeavor. Share the channel. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Uh, I usually go on once a week, but sometimes some other things will 
hit and I might do a surprise uh, pop in or there'll be some pre-recorded videos. So please support the channel. And if you can't do so um, in any other way, please make sure you at least uh, subscribe. But this this is also reminiscent of something that, that I talk about uh, in one of my written works. I talk about um, what, what, what I call a gynopotestal family. Mm-hmm. And, ba- and basically what that refers to is we've, we've reached an era where you can literally meet a woman, right? And she has a daughter and she's, she lives either with or near her mother and her mm-hmm. mother's mother. So yeah. you can have four generations of women, right? Who don't have any men in their families right? from, from grandmother down. Yes. There are no men to be found, whether they're no longer alive or whether they have been, you know, whether there's been a divorce or they were never married or never wanted to necessarily be fathers. I mean, we talk about the reproductive process outside of the actual physical physical act of sex. Men don't have very much protection beyond that, you know, which is why if financial abortion is one of the options mm-hmm. on the uh, black male political agenda, because at the end of the day, your seed, once it leaves your body, you are wholly at the mercy of whatever decision a woman makes. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is that if you read uh, uh, E. Franklin Frazier's book, the, the Negro Family of the United States, you find out far too many times the man doesn't just leave, he's pushed out. He's pushed out. Right? After that kids get a certain age, he's no longer needed, the, the women actually push him out of the out of the house. Mm-hmm. Well, and, 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 but, it, but then too, if you can use the state as a proxy force, right. To implement your particular vision, to implement your attempt to control, you can push fathers out using the family court, using the police. Definitely by the time we get the Duluth model, you can even use uh, false accusations of abuse Mm -hmm. uh, or sexual assault or rape. And all of these become mechanisms that black men cannot use, but can only really be subject to. And so when you begin to add them up, what we what we see is the elimination of the black male from the family. Again, I talked about this last week mm-hmm. and the ways in which it impacts the black family. So this gynopotestal structure where you have, you know, pockets. Of, and I'm, I, I met a woman a few years ago on a dating app uh, and we went and had breakfast and I'm talking to her. And sure enough, you know, she's 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 got daughter. But she lives across the street. No, her her mother lived with her. Her grandmother lived around the corner from her, right? So it was, it, it, so there was like four generations of women, and although they didn't live under the same roof, they, there was a web, there was a connection of them in a short area, sort of small space in town. And so what, what I was noticing, I was like, wow, well, where are the men? Oh, mm-hmm. well, you know, I never married my husband. It was, it was, you know, we just got pregnant, and he didn't want to be a father. Mm-hmm. But what happened with your mother? Oh, well, I never really knew my father. Okay. Well, where's your Mm. grandfather? Well, he died 40 years ago, you know, and it's this interesting kind of thing. So again, when I see that video, the six generations of women, for me, it, 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 it doesn't come across as a celebration of a family or even of the black family. For me, Mm. it comes across as a statement about the absence and exclusion and expulsion in many instances of black men from the family. It, it kind of reminds me of a beehive after the drones or the male drones have seeded the queen. Damn Just happens they get they get pushed out of the hive. Man, you gonna have me? <laughs> <laughs> you gonna have me pulling out a drink tonight, man? Why you said it like that? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, I think I was gonna write a short story called "Drones" about black how black boys are are used as uh, as material. 
to to seed and um, that was common in the south okay uh, a, a, a woman would get a man and she would have you know the requisite number of children you know uh, eight nine ten children after the, the oldest boy got old enough to take his place the man got pushed out of the family she didn't need him anymore but this is this is why I had I proposed black masculinism, and essentially, what I what it, the formal definition of it is that uh, you know it centers black males across age, class, and sexuality, seeks to frame the actual state of black male life in measurable terms, mm-hmm. advocating for black male studies. We endeavor to empirically contextualize the major pillars that indicate black males' quality of life. Uh, from carceral treatment to criminal civil sentencing, leading causes of death, health, employment, income, wealth status, education, violence, intimate partner violence and homicide, rape, housing, homelessness, types of labor, political approaches, wealth, family court impact, fatherhood, forms of protest, marriage, and the history of institutionally based treatment are just beginning points for analysis. I call for Black masculinism to highlight the black uh, highlight black males' lives beyond society's assumptions, often rooted in stereotype and based on shorthand information, slanderous media representations, and even personal grudges. The areas of analysis for black masculinism are anti-black misandry, white supremacy, black gynarchy, the dual economy, socioeconomic underdevelopment, and so forth. But essentially, what it is is a multidisciplinary approach at analyzing black male life and advocating for a more realistic and measurable idea of what black male life is. So moving beyond stereotype, moving beyond narrative, people's personal narratives, you know, because people tell you story about one black man that did something to them that you can't verify, but that somehow justifies how black men as a group are perceived. So black masculinism is both a political movement as well as a means of analysis for making sense of black male life on measurable, measurable, empirically based terms. And so that's one of the reasons that we're, you know, we kind of go through the news articles that, you know, BJS and I went through earlier and even some of the, you know, the data in regard to boys, we're trying to look at black male life beyond the convenient and, and slanderous narrative of what society has given us and look at what, what tells us about black male life beyond that. And one of the things that, again, going back to um, Athena Matua, when she identified, um, Spook Freeman, appreciate that support, uh, when she identified black male privilege, these Mm. were kind of the examples she referred to. I added a little bit uh, based on some of the things I've heard people say, right? Um, Hold on. Uh Uh-oh. Let me... It always kind of happens. I'm getting better at uh, managing this, but still catches me off guard sometimes. All right. So in terms of black male privilege, the idea here pushed forth by Matua as well as, uh, you know, other black feminists that I've run across over the years is that black men were privileged because in terms of college education and pro and, and professional sports, they have access that nobody does. And because they can become millionaires um, in sports in music, in dance, you know, some type of entertainment based, you know, mm-hmm. field because they have opportunity. Now, obviously not in terms of music and dance because women have access to that too, but because sports is so overwhelmingly beneficial to males and not females that it, it highlights a, a privilege. Any thoughts on that? 
The one, the, the one thing that I'm looking at on that chart, I don't see how there's a privilege is death. Well, I see the privilege is, and this is the argument made by okay. feminists, that death, in the sense that they are recognized in their deaths as a fact, and this has actually been a statement that I have seen written as well as as spoken by established scholars that because black men are recognized in death disproportionately, that that is a form of privilege. <laughs> now you tell me if any of that recognition has diminished the rates of death for black men. It has not. <laughs> and often when we talk about it, it's not because black men are just, you know, loved to any greater degree. It's because we often are able to, especially in the last, if we go back to Rodney King, Mm-hmm. Right. One of the major differences when it comes to black male death is that it's caught on camera so easily mm-hmm. and it's caught on a camera so easily because it's so prevalent. It's so prevalent. Yes. That's the basis of it. But it's argued that it's a form of privilege. So how do how, so how do black men benefit from that privilege? I don't I don't understand. Well, and that's the question that one could ask about any of them. Right. Because yeah. If you go to the sports one, here's look, you already know. Probably better than I do because I'm not a sports aficionado. It's only been in recent decades that you started, or recent decades that you've seen uh, men getting twenty million, thirty dollar, thirty million dollar deals as athletes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the overwhelming majority of professional athletes, where they may make a six figure income, they have a shelf life of three to five years three on average. Five years, oh, yeah. And they may make six figures, and and I mean even in the lower one hundreds. Yeah. And then be out. Then be out. Right? The small percentage actually get there. The small percentage they get, and when you when you really begin to think about black boys who actually start playing sports in elementary school, especially mm-hmm. football, basketball, but even boxing, when you look at how long they've been doing this, the mm-hmm. percentage of them that even make it to the pros is, you know, is a fraction of one percent. But when you factor in that they have a shelf life of three to five years and may make six figures during that time period, and then be completely out of the game and and broke, yeah. And we're not even talking about how they're exploited in college where they don't, you know, they're not making an income. So, you know, but to have that listed as a privilege, particularly, and I, man, these are the boys that are sitting in my class, man. And I'm telling you, many of them can barely read. Many of them don't make it through their four years, whether it's due to injury, whether it's due to dropping out, whether it's due to low academic performance, they end up right back at home where they came from far too often. Right. And, and, but the fact that it's even being framed as a privilege. Right. And I've had students that will take classes, mm-hmm. you know, or go to lectures, you know, by these feminists and, and come back with this kind of mentality. And I've talked about this, even with a, a, a dear student of mine who was almost like a daughter to me. You know, she came back from a lecture and she was excited about black male privilege. And at this lecture, this took place at Fresno State. The, the two pieces of information used to justify the existence of black male privilege was a picture of Snoop Dogg with a chain around a woman's neck and mm-hmm. the idea that black men eat the big piece of chicken at dinner. This is by a tenured professor who's giving a lecture about black male privilege. Though, well, the, the, there was three pieces, pieces of evidence. She said the other evidence was that black men didn't suffer from hair discrimination. 
I've since, you know, written a piece <laughs> on my blog dismantling that because it's ridiculous and it's not true. Black men have always suffered from hair discrimination and, and to greater degrees than black women, believe it or not, because we have beards. Yeah. And so you're talking about, you know, jobs, you know, that might require you be clean shaven. And many black men can testify to the impact of being clean shaven without the uh, proper means to do that. You know, so the, the kind of scarification of the face, so on and so uh -huh. forth. So black men have always suffered from hair discrimination, but those were her three pieces of evidence. Uh, hair discrimination, mm -hmm. uh, Snoop Dogg having a chain around a woman's neck and eating the big piece of chicken. So why, so why don't we just suppose the, the perceived black male privilege against the black female privilege, actually list by list and see which one is greater? Since yeah, we we're going to do this. We, you know what? We can do that. But I just want to put I want the, to big, put the big, 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 big piece of chicken. I want you know to put what it on there. It was actually explained to me by my grandmother mm -hmm. about why uh, one they feed the men first and why they get them the greater amount of food at a certain time period. Right. But go ahead, please explain. In, a, in other words, the black. The, in other words, they had to keep the black male alive and well for as long as possible because they're doing very heavy work for like 12, 13 hours a day. Mm hmm. And if he didn't survive, the whole family was in trouble. Mm -hmm. So you had to feed him first. You had to feed him well so you could actually go out and provide for the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. So that's where the tradition comes from. Even today, who do, who does the most physical work in, in the black family? Is the female or the male? I'm not sure, man. We're so privileged. <laughs> we're, I, so I pri we're so privileged. I don't, I don't know. Um, you tell me. So, so if you if 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 you if they're lucky enough to have a black male in the family, the reason that they get the most food, the reason that they get the big piece of chicken, is so they can actually do more work. It's not it's not a privilege. Is it a privilege to work yourself to death for a family? And that see, and that now you're adding in the whole other component to it, um, you know, that I wanted to bring up. Um, and, and my boy in Prince says the big piece of chicken also gives you heart disease. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that is very true. It's, it's, it's like calling your plow horse where you have to feed a, a, a great amount of food, more food than you can eat, saying that the horse is privileged. That the horse is privileged, right. You're right. Uh, shout out to Adam for the support. Shout out to Lance. Uh, appreciate that. Um, uh, shout out to Ray. Um, appreciate the support. Um, let's see. And I think I also may have missed a few cash apps. Nicole, appreciate the support. Thank you. Um, and Cedric, uh, thanks for the PayPal. Um, but you know, against this male privilege, I, I just listed a few basic areas of where young black men, um, experience, uh, what we could call ignored vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Right. They're, the areas that they're vulnerable. Vernon, appreciate the support areas where they're vulnerable. And yet we don't pay any attention to it. Um, <laughs> Officer Faulkner didn't weighed in. <laughs> big piece of chicken <laughs> about the big piece of respect and dignity. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm you know, I'm joking, but I'm not because when these when these when the big piece of chicken was brought up, um, it's brought up with a very kind of factual tone. Mm -hmm. A very kind of serious take. And, and and again, going back to my student, when I asked her, well, if I asked you to prove, you know, white male privilege, 
How would you prove it? She said, oh, I would look at home ownership rates. I would look at income. I would look at inherited wealth. I would look at, and she named, just rattled off 10 different categories just right off the head. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, you take those very same 10 categories and tell me where black men and women fit on each one of them. She looked at me. Mm-hmm. She looked down at the ground. Mm-hmm. She looked to the side, you know, you know what people do when they're thinking. Mm-hmm. And then she went, oh. I said, so you sat in the lecture and listened to the big piece of chicken argument, but you can give me right off the head 10 different methods you would use to us to assess privilege when it comes to white men. Mm-hmm. None of that comes to mind when it comes to black men. And the reason it didn't come to mind, and this is no disrespect to her, uh, but it, it, what, the reason it didn't come to mind is because it was to be taken as an assumption that black males and white males are the same. Therefore, as a, in terms of flat gender, right? As far as, you know, manhood is concerned, whatever white men benefit from, all men benefit from. And so it didn't it didn't dawn on 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 her. And this thing that was a lecture that was primary. I might have been one of two, if not three black males in the room. There might have been over 200 people there, all black women for the most part. And they gave this woman a standing ovation. Right. It was it was well received because denigrating black men without evidence is par for the course. It's accepted. Mm-hmm. It's not only rooted in a, in a misandry toward black men, but it's also rooted in an assumption that black men and white men are the same. Men are men. Yeah. Right? But which is, which is something so Junior True said back in the uh, 1850s that uh, uh, black men and, and white men are the same. If you give black men privilege, any kind of leg up, they're going to be the same people. Right. They're going to be the same people, even though the evidence doesn't support that at all. But but just, you know, you can see here the areas of ignored vulnerability that I pointed to. And 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 basically, um, uh, this was supposed to be a note to myself, but uh, Michi X recently did a show where she talked about a 16-year-old black boy that was sexually assaulted mm-hmm. um, and raped. Uh, and I didn't get a chance to include that in my uh, current events intro. So you can check out. It's one of the, I want to say it's one of the last three shows she did, but I think she did it with uh, Dr. Shawnee. And she kind of talked about that. So if you haven't gotten a chance to hear uh, that, you can go check it out. But I was just going to cite that as an example. But when it comes to sexual assault and rape uh, of black boys, there's little discussion on that. Uh, when it comes to, and even, well, parental abuse, as you can see down here, um, often across race, that's it's mostly extended to children by women, you know, in higher numbers. But there's no discussion on it. We just talked about education and 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 really looked at some of the data that you know is not really mainstream by any measure um we could talk we talked earlier about you know how juveniles are are treated right how they're hyper punished expelled from schools and put into institutions we obviously saw an example of police treatment when we looked at the young man um who was merely keep you know trying to keep his arms warm and was tackled uh, and hospitalized. Um, we, we can talk about foster youth, particularly black boys, mm-hmm. you know, as the least adopted, you know, the least supported, least sought after and the most criminalized. And the rates of foster children, of foster boys that are incarcerated and hypercriminalized in that respect are, are fairly high. And I, I have it in another paper, but I didn't have time to kind of pull it in for today. So I might do a future show on that if anybody's interested. Uh, and of course, in terms of employment, I mean, the rates of young black male unemployment uh, in certain cities is extremely high, well over 50%. Yeah. And yet nobody talks about that. 
right? So these are just a few, and this is just random. These are just a few things that I, I typed out in terms of areas where black male vulnerability is ignored, but we can have a conversation about the big piece of chicken, the big damn piece of chicken. Now, I'm sorry. Now, I did interrupt you because you were saying you were thinking about measuring black male privilege against uh, black female privilege. Did yeah. you want to continue that thought? No, I was just thinking nobody ever talks about black female privilege, about mm. the advantages that black females have in, the, in, in as, as opposed to black males, mm. the advantages and disadvantages. Because they don't, they never talk about black female privilege. It's never a discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they even talk about uh, white female privilege, but mm -hmm. black female privilege is never discussed because right. it's assumed that they don't have it. Right. That they're doubly oppressed by both by black males and by the white establishment. Right. Right. And the more you go into the data, the more you find that uh, to be questionable. Um, so again, shout out to Dr. Tommy Curry. If you haven't read his book, The Man Not, please mm -hmm. do so. Uh, it'll definitely give you the paradigm um, that you need to best, you know, kind of assess what's been going on um, and kind of make sense of that. But any closing thoughts before we close out, brother? Um, you know, this, I'm just wondering, man, how, you know, this, this, this oppression against uh, black males has been going on for 300 years. Mm -hmm. And um, and civil rights was supposed to actually address that. I'm just wondering how long will people just ignore the problem that just keeps festering and festering and festering? You know, we, we, we educate our females, but the thing is, it, the problem never gets better. Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just curious. In, in fact, it, when you try to bring it up, you actually get pushback that it can't be this bad. Mm -hmm. That this can't exist. That no, you can't have a privileged group of of men, of males with these kind of stats. It, that means they're defective because they have all these advantages that 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 black women don't. But yet, what do they do with it? Mm -hmm. And if you begin to actually point out the advantages they don't have, and you do any type of comparative analysis with black women or girls, it's immediately you know conceptualized as you know. Um, something that black males are, are doing out of hatred for black women. Yeah. It, 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 that's the immediate framework that it's put into. But the problem with that is it doesn't allow us to really look at you know the, the very real issues that we're facing. Mm -hmm. so yeah, a, a lot of the comparative analysis between black women and girls that I do and black men and boys is not to denigrate girls. It, it, it's actually to highlight how much race does not explain our experiences well enough. Because when you begin to really delve into the gender dynamic, you find that, again, and I've said this repeatedly, black men and, and boys live a completely different quality of life. Uh, shout out to Stone8419. Appreciate the support. Um, and again, um, make sure you, you put your uh, cash app in the comments at least one more time for me, BGS. It wouldn't let me copy it. Um, oh, I'm in StreamYard, but anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and I appreciate you you coming in today. Um, like I said, we're going to hook up next week and we're actually going to talk about 
uh, black male archetypes. If that's mm -hmm. something you're interested in or you want to make any contribution yeah. to that preemptively, you can go ahead and send me an email. You can you can, go, you can reach me very easily through my website, thassanjohnson.com. Uh, contact me through there. You can send any ideas you wish. I will definitely give you credit and uh, point out uh, if I think it uh, it fits where I'm going with it. Um, yeah. You know, yeah the, the, the thing is, is that, you know, in, in this modern society, all the things that we talk about are preventable. Mm -hmm. They're all preventable, easily preventable. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that either, you know, either uh, nobody's uh, people will actually want this to continue or nobody cares. I don't know which it is, but the, mm -hmm. all this stuff is preventable, easily preventable. Well, and the thing about it is, and this is why the promotion demotion thesis is so key. Mm -hmm. If you if you extend it to males, the same mm -hmm. you know benefits you extended to females in the night from the nineteen eighties forward, this would be a radically different conversation right now. Mm -hmm. If they, you know what I mean, if they were extended on equal grounds, it would be a very a very different conversation. But it's it's the degree to which they were not extended on equal grounds, and boys and men. Uh, suffered dis disproportionately. So again, while they got college access, we got the war on drugs. Well, the thing is, if if you just if you just left the black males alone, okay, let leave them to their own devices. Stop, stop trying to hold them back. Stop trying to uh, target them. Stop trying to target them in schools, in on the street, by police. Just let them be. You will see an improvement. Mm -hmm. Not even helping them, just 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 treating them equally, mm -hmm. without with with all the without the oppression about by holding them back by targeting mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. They would Absolutely. improve just by doing that without 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 the large scale uh, large scale uh, programs to help them. If you mm -hmm. just just leave them alone, mm -hmm. just let them be regular people mm -hmm. instead Absolutely. of this this monster that they've been portrayed to be. Which is instead of trying to uh, keep your foot on the neck and keep them as underclass that they've been for the last three hundred years, how much better would black black boys and black men be if you just treat them regularly, not give them help, but just treat them regularly? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm curious. Absolutely, and that would be something that that I would have loved to see, and I still would love to see, and 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 this is one of the reasons we do the black male political agenda because I want black men. To be able to articulate this on their own grounds, on yeah. their own terms. Yeah, black women get benign, benign neglect, and we get um, black men get active oppression. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks again, brother, for being on the show. Um, Y'all know how I like to close out. I'm Where's here to tell. Oh, go ahead. Where's the uh -huh. t-shirt, sir? <laughs> um, yeah, I need some help with the t-shirts. I made some designs, and they were horrible. Uh, so if any of you out there can help with that, I'd greatly appreciate it. But I was like, I ain't selling. I ain't even trying to put these out there for brothers. They don't look at me crazy. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you can extend some help on uh, T-shirt design, uh, I, you know, I definitely appreciate that support. Uh, but like I said, y'all know how I close out. Uh, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings. Success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, innovators, inventors, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. 
Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace. Um, hold on. Dang it. This thing is stuck. Don't let me close out. <laughs> <laughs>